This is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, and I'm very excited on this second day of the new year to be trying something new. We have assembled here, I searched the world over, and I found the journalists who were best informed on the hill towns in the Helderbergs, the town of New Scotland, and the villages of Voorheesville and Altamont, and the town of Gilderland. And they are H. Rose Schneider, who we call Rose, covering the hill towns, Sean Mulcairin, covering New Scotland and the villages, and Elizabeth Floyd Mayer, covering the town of Gilderland. And the idea is we're going to be like Janus today, the Roman god that had a face that went in both directions. We're going to be looking back at the last year, 2017, and looking ahead a bit with the expertise we have collectively gathered around this table to see what might be unfolding in the year ahead. So just to start with Sean, one of the main issues this past year in the places you cover was planning. Can you just tell us a little about what both Voorheesville and New Scotland did with their plans and what what caused these things to transpire? New Scotland and Voorheesville, they had actually set out to define and maintain what their rural character that they were trying to maintain. Um, the village set out and presented their comprehensive plan just last month, which will be going to a public hearing next month. The town of New Scotland, as well as working on a comprehensive plan, which they plan to present, I think, in the next few months. But they also were presenting a Hamlet plan, which is different because it's a react. This Hamlet plan is a specific reaction to the big box store controversy of a decade ago, where a Target anchored mall was going to be placed on the old Bender Mellon farm. So this Hamlet plan now sets out more strident... Um, more stringent requirements yes, for what can be built exactly. there. Yeah. Keeping things under... Uh, keeping retail under 50,000 square feet and a, you know specific architectural details now that should be put into every home so they're all looking alike. They have much more of a village feel to them. So some of the background in addition to what you've mentioned is there's a burst of development in Scotland now and there's a sense like with the moving of the historic hundred year old barn across the street that this little green space might become a novelty rather than a norm Um, and I think a lot of the town election turned on that can you tell us a little about what happened in the election in November well in the democratic Dominated town. It actually they maintained their the the domination of the town board and the planning board and the zoning board. Um, what kind of crystallized that was the um, Joe Salvino, the owner of Track Thirty Two, wanted to install a a rolling sign that was deemed to be flashing, which the town did not allow. But it was originally told he Salvino was originally told it was okay for him to have the 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 sign by Jeremy Kramer of the um, the building inspector. 
But as it went through the planning process, he found out that no, he could not have the sign. So then for the next, this was in March of this year, I believe, to just last in September when they redid it, when they came up with a, a law for this. So Salvino wanted his sign, and throughout the process, um, at each step, he was told that they needed to take more time to look at it because there was, on the books, there's no actual law, there's no actual definition of what a scrolling or flashing sign is in the town of New Scotland previous to this new law. So they what they did was they actually defined what a, f- a scrolling and flashing sign was. Therefore, now people know going forward what they can and can't have. And it was Salvino's sign that was the catalyst for this, which changed you know the entire sign law, which was kind of more of a referendum on you know the type of development and the type of um, future future the town wants to a lot of whenever you spoke with the candidates what came up over and over again is we don't want to become Western Ave in Gilderland we don't want to become Bethlehem we don't want to become Colony we don't want to become we don't want our own cross town mall they want to maintain that character and that's what basically this past election kind of hinged on is maintaining that character which is what Dan Lining, Adam Greenberg ran on is maintaining that and they overwhelmingly beat the Republican candidate Craig Schufelt and it's a change from the last time that Mr. Schufelt ran when it was very very close yeah it was so close when been. he lost yeah and then in the village of Orisville just to get a little history there I was covering parts of that myself where there were packed meeting halls on two issues one was um the Stewarts, which did eventually sell um, or bought the land from the Smith's Tavern. And the other was um, a planned development housing units, apartment units um, from St. Matthew's Church. And the, the village didn't have a master plan, a comprehensive plan. So they set about undertaking that and just tell us a little what's in that plan and how that might unfold um well in the next year once again that was again that was a backlash the the public thought that the way that the town went about trying to approve this project which was a planned unit development which if i remember that's correctly where the developer where not all the town laws are met by this development, but the developer will come back to the town and say, this is what I have, and they will work with the town on the different laws that might not meet it, and they can try to come together and work it out, the deal. So now with this comprehensive plan, it sets out specific details that are required. It rezones part of the town to allow for, you know, there are now the areas that, Certain developments in terms of size and stature are allowed, and then it tries to make a more concerted effort to create a more of a main street where they, it will be a draw for people to come in who are coming down off of the rail trail. And they want to try and, once again, working off of that rural character, put in little shops and stores that will draw people into this town center. And as they move out from the town center the development and the homes that are newly going in they will have to meet certain requirements and as well as the build the 
businesses that will be going into certainly certain newly rezoned areas. So that opens up the question that might segue into our Hilltown discussion, which is, what do you do if you envision these little businesses coming? How do you inspire that? One of the things that you recently wrote about that was crushing for some people was the longtime Voorheesville Diner right next to the train tracks there suddenly closing and people feeling like with Smitty's gone and the diner gone, there's no longer a sit-down place or a community gathering third place. Anybody have any thoughts on what happens in the sort of larger economic mix to um, once these plans are in place to actually get some sort of interest in, in developing what's envisioned? Well, I had spoken to uh, Mayor Conway about this who in Voorheesville who told me that what the town does is they facilitate. And by doing that, by that he meant putting the infrastructure in that's necessary. Um, down by Smitty, um, excuse me, the Voorheesville Diner there or Main Street, the Central Business District, there aren't sewers. So that can be a lot. That's a very difficult thing for businesses to not have is sewer systems. So that really inhibits development. So that's one of the things they're looking at through one of their studies is to how feasible it is to put sores in that would facilitate that type of development. So the municipality's role ends with providing the infrastructure, and the rest is up to serendipity it's, or there things you can well do then, to... Yeah. <coughs> they went, in Voorheesville, in the comprehensive plan, they did do an economic development study where they took a snapshot of the area where they looked at, you know, people's incomes. You know, they did a massive survey about what they want in the town. A lot of people wanted a sit-down restaurant. They also found that a bike store would be a big thing. That So what they, what I was told is they can do is they can take this data that they have and then they can go out to prospective businesses and market themselves. And market themselves. Good. Well, we're going to segue over to the Hilltowns now and Rose. And it seems like Rose does the work of four people. She's covering four towns, Burn, Knox, Rensselaerville, and Westerlo. And a lot of her energy this year went into political coverage. So could you give us kind of any broad brush strokes about why there was this sudden... Republican sweep, or maybe not sweep, but at least inroads made in a Democratic area this year? Um, well, I guess if you had to get a feel of what people's attitudes were, um, you know, why they were either Democrats or um, no people in not, not in a political party voting for these Republican candidates, or even Democrats and independents and or people not enrolled in a party being on the Republican line I you know it, a lot of it just went down to being sort of fed up with this idea of you know an establishment um, you know Albany County is pretty well known for having a very strong democratic hold um, and I think that combined with you know what you're talking about um, towns that like in Voorheesville, where they're trying to remediate the problem, um, you know, have a lack of businesses that were, you know, once there. 
um, in the hill towns, um, you know, people are fed up with the, you know, supervisors that and council members who are have been there for years and years and you know from their point of view they're looking for a change they're looking for you know someone with new ideas it's you know you could say it's something that happened in the presidential election in 2016 and what was interesting is the theme in on a more national level in you know these you know um recent elections in 2017 you know in places like um like in virginia um i'm trying to think of other states new i think new jersey virginia um you know people were saying oh there's a surge of democrat democratic candidates alabama Alabama, yeah um (laughs) well um and there's a surge of democratic candidates and i remember on election night i was getting all these notifications on my phone about that after you know, going home after speaking with these Republican candidates who were celebrating because um, in Knox, all the Republican candidates were elected. In Bern, it was a little closer. Um, originally, it looked like the um, there was a majority of Republican candidates on the town council, um, but the Democratic candidate, Joel Wilsey, won by one vote after a, you know, a legal battle. Um, I don't know if I'm answering the question. No, yes, you are. There was, it's just interesting. Um, the question becomes, though, um, and it's in the hill towns, we could see it in the last presidential election. In all the hill towns, it's at least two to one enrollment, Democrats mm-hmm. to Republicans, and in some places, even four to one. And in earlier presidential elections, most recently before Trump with Obama, they went Democratic which is no surprise. But with the Trump election, they went Republican. So it was like the meaning of party allegiance had fallen away, and this idea of a need for change was the driving force. But I wonder if some of these problems that people are frustrated with, like the lack of businesses, have to do less with political leadership than with the reality, and maybe you have thoughts on this of the times, you know, um, a hundred years ago, each of these communities would have a general store or even a blacksmith if they were still using horses and things that they needed there to meet their own needs. And now, of course, people shop on the Internet. They drive to large malls. Um, is it something that's realistic to expect the town leadership to reverse that? Or do people have hope just – or is it more anger? <laughs> I think it might be there's some anger there i think definitely there's hope that you know with a change in administration it would be an easy fix um and there's definitely been this you know when you're looking at something like planning if you go look at knox there's definitely been these two schools of thoughts that once you you know with the idea of establishing a business district and in knox there's no you know there's no sewer district or water district um, so the sort of so thing Sean was just saying, yeah, if you establish the infrastructure, mm-hmm. build it and they will come. Yeah, so there's the school of thought. Yeah, if you establish this business district, then, you know, businesses will come and then they can focus on the, you know, these other options later. And there's the other school of thought that, you know, you have to put in, you know, all this different planning, you know, um, you know, have a 
you know, an IDA or have, um, you know, set up a sewer district, um, you know, because there was a lot of concern about, um, you know, the um, karst geology being, you know, um, allowing pollutants. And for people that don't know, karst geology has to do with the way limestone configures Mm -hmm. itself. So there are crevices and sewage can get very strangely, for instance, from up in Knox down to the bottom of the Elderbergs. Yeah. So, you know, there's, um, you know, I'm trying to think of the way to put this. Um, basically, people saying before establishing a business district, you know, change the environment so that it's more friendly to businesses. Um, and I think it is very hard to bring businesses up to the hill towns now. Um, it's, I mean, a lot of towns in Albany County are struggling anyway. There was, you know, recently there was um, like an announcement from the county executive saying that you should shop locally because otherwise it's going to hurt the county. Um, and just to unpack that a little, but that's because the most of the municipalities depend heavily on the revenue from sales tax. So all the sales tax collected in Albany County, most notably from Crossgate, Small, and Gilderland, gets redistributed a portion of it according to population. And if people are shopping on the Internet or shopping out of the county, then that revenue dries up. So. And the hill towns are on the edge of the county, so people would potentially go to so elizabeth is chiming in here well yeah with with crossgates you know there's the we wrote about this year about the problem that um just like a lot of malls you know a lot of malls around here we've seen um seen them you know turn into ghost malls or reinvent themselves like the rotterdam mall is you know in the process of reinventing itself um but um, you know, there's this kind of lurking specter of <clears throat> whether Crossgates is going to follow that pattern at some point in the future, or whether it can you know maintain itself as the you know yes. the centerpiece of the town. And you know, we've seen the shift in Crossgates from actual shopping to entertainment and activities and stuff. So now there's you know you can go there and shoot guns, you can go there and have a massage, guns. you can <laughs> <laughs> yes, rip pretend guns. <laughs> Um, have a massage, you know, go bowling, whatever, um, you know, do fluorescent golf or, you know, things like that. And none of those things charge sales tax. So the move in Crossgates Mall is away from sales tax um, and towards these other things. So that's kind of, I guess, contributing to the yeah. sales tax problem. So, Sean, did you have something to you? Well, <clears throat> I was just thinking, you know, with Rose and the Hill Towns, it's just the perfect microcosm of what's happening nationally with the rural areas that went so hard for Trump. Those are the hardest hit areas that have yet to rebound since pre, even before the the Bush recession. Uh, and no one, and it's you know, it's that's that shuffling or that 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 idea where everyone's just running to cities now to do all of the big things where. Boston, San Francisco, New York City are perfectly fine. Everyone there is making a lot of money, and the rest of the country is suffering, and you see that up up there on the Hilltowns. Yes, there's been a demographic shift. The inner cities are being, I don't know if yuppified is a word, but... Um, gentrified. People, yeah. There we go, <laughs> thanks. Yeah. Gentrified, and there's now a new a new ring of poverty on the outskirts of the cities in the early now slightly run down suburbs and we can see that effect in Gilderland as well where Elizabeth has written about for instance a program to send 
food home on weekends with kids so they and their families can eat. And it was kind of a shock to all of us to think of such poverty in Gilderland, which seems like a um, a very wealthy suburb, but it's it's there. But Rose, looking ahead now, Rose has been to the reorganizational meeting on New Year's Day in Knox, and I have not yet heard as the editor what happened. I did cover the last two reorganizational meetings there after Vasilios Lefkadidis had been elected and couldn't get the votes that he wanted to make the changes that he thought were necessary, and this is new news to me and all of us. What, what, what was the... Tell us about what happened on yesterday well it was a it was a quicker meeting than i expected um you know the knox meetings in knox can sometimes go on for a long time because they can get um you know they can get heated um and actually a lot of the um positions um that are up to for you know reappointments whether they're vacant um or whether you know, that's just a position that someone is currently in, but their term is up. Um, a lot of those were actually tabled until um, a meeting in um, the next meeting in like January 9th. Um, for so the you'll board have to discuss the long meeting then. <laughs> yes. Um, according to the supervisor, the supervisor said they had a lot of people, um, you know, submit applications to them. So it could be a possibility that. Um, those positions, whether they're vacant or not, could have someone new in them. One of the um, motions that was um, that did go through at the meeting was appointing a planning board chair. Um, the new, you know, Bob Price has been the planning board chair for decades, yes, decades, much longer than I've been covering the Hilltowns. Um, and in, in, instead, and in a three to two vote, um, Tom Wolf was appointed in his place. And Tom Wolf has been the um, one of the, I think one of the only planning board members to really support um, the idea of creating new business districts. Um, he's um, laid out an argument that things like uh, concerns about um, water and sewer can be covered by the county and the state, that that can be regulated that way. Um, meanwhile, the rest of the planning board has voted um, against even allowing the planning, these um, new business districts to go through. Um, but the town board, you know, went ahead and um, discussed them anyway, but they were, um, at least one of them was voted uh, down this summer. Um against, you know, with the supervisor um, voting for, um, I think being one of two people to vote for the business district going through. So um, the vote was split um, with Supervisor Vasilios Lefkadidis, um, who was reelected as supervisor this November. Um, he's a Democrat running on the, he ran on the Republican line. And um the other two people who voted for appointing Wolf um, were Carl Pritchard and Ken Saddlemeyer. Um, and Carl Pritchard is not enrolled in any party, and Saddlemeyer is a, also a Democrat. And all three ran on the Republican line. Um, and so the two who voted against it were Earl Barkham and Barber, who had both voted against it before, because each year since he's been elected, Mr. Lefkadidis has tried to... Tried to appoint right. Wolf in, in, in place of Price. Um, and, you know, both times that has not gone through. So, I mean, the planning board, 
it oversees a lot of different um well it's it it plays an integral role in the town i mean recently the planning board like within a year approved a solar array um the borrego solar array and then you know did not approve another solar array in knox on the border of altamont um you know the building of those could affect you know the town you know significantly and you know it'll it'll be interesting to see you know if they if the board's under you know leadership if that will you know change you know what decisions are made by the planning board and you know if it will be more in line with what the supervisor wants or you know if it will not right because the membership the way the state law sets up these boards planning and zoning is they have very long term so they can't fluctuate with um the political winds so it will be interesting to see what yes. happens but there is a term that is up it's hasn't been determined who will be um and in that new or in that position on the planning board currently it's held by travis o'donnell who is filling in um the position after dan driscoll died um from what I understand, he's interested in keeping the um, position, but he has been very much opposed to um, establishing a new business district. He, he's the one who's um, presented, you know, to, when the town board was deter- was discussing whether, you know, was voting, having a discussion before voting on the um proposed business district um he presented you know the the ideas that you know you should have you know you should change the environment first you know yeah he was for encouraging business and thought Mm -hmm. there already is a business district with no businesses so doing that yeah that's the gist of it no one is saying you know they they don't want businesses there I, i suppose a few people are saying you know they don't want a big box store but everyone's saying there's a basically arguing over what the best way is to go about um, bringing in businesses that would fit the character of the town. And, you know, the same has been discussed in Bern, you know, by the candidates, um, but, you know, nowhere near to the degree that it's been discussed in Knox. Um, Well, I think we're going to move now for our last section on Gilderland. And one of the great things about Elizabeth as a reporter is she listens to voices a lot of other people don't hear and has done a lot of exceptional work that no one else has done this year with courts and police. But the two stories that stand out, and I hope we have time to get to them, um, that stand out for me anyway, are what happened when there was a bomb threat at Gilderland High School. It was an empty threat, no bomb. And also... A case that Elizabeth has been following for more than a year with a young man, a day laborer, first day on the job, who was killed in a wood chipper. So start with which either of those you would like to talk about. Her. Yeah, so there were two bomb threats in November um, 2016 um, you know, that were emailed to school administrators. And it uh, turned out that one of them was a 15-year-old, one of the people who... Um, who the police uh, arrested was a 15-year-old. The other was a 16-year-old. And uh, unfortunately for the 16-year-old, the law in New York State at the time was um, that he was to be treated as an adult. So he was charged with felonies in uh, the town court. And um, and the other uh, person was charged, you know, his, his proceeding went 
through in family court. Um, so, yeah, so the 16-year-old um, who had, uh, according to the arrest report, had supplied the other person with an email address and password that he could use, um, wound up with the much more severe consequences. Um, and um, it also emerged that he was a person who was um, on the autism spectrum, the 16-year-old was. So um, that raised questions of, you know, um, h- how the courts deal with someone who is on the autism spectrum, you know, um, and how much essentially, I guess, sympathy there is uh, or accommodation of any sort for a person like that. So, um, you know, there were, um, yeah, there were questions just about, like, um, that were raised about, um, you know, his questioning by the Gilderland police um, about, um, you know, he was 16, so the parents were not called. You know, they were not phoned and said, you know, they, they weren't asked to come down and be with him or anything like that. Um, but um, so there were there were some questions raised about whether it was conveyed to the police that he was on the autism spectrum and whether any accommodation was made during his questioning for um, his autism. So, um, yeah. Well, Elizabeth delved in, and also Rose did quite a bit on um, Angelo Santa Barbara, who's the assemblyman for our area and has a son who he adores, who is on the autism spectrum, has drafted some legislation that might help in the future. And maybe Rose can tell us a little about that. And then Elizabeth can tell us what Gilderland itself has done um, to help identify so that police and other agencies are better able to understand and communicate with people on the spectrum who often get arrested when they've done nothing wrong. So the legislation, um, I believe it was drafted around, or at least I was writing about it around the last quarter of 2016. And interestingly enough, one of the people I spoke with who helped draft the legislation is someone who is on the autism spectrum. And... um, there are several different aspects to uh, the legislation. Um, one of them is, and I believe this one was recently, I believe, put into um, put into law, was to have, or at least the Gilderland Police adapted, I think, a version of this, um, yeah. was oh. to have ID cards um, identifying, you know, the person as autistic if there's any sort of other things to be known, you know, if they don't react well to loud noises or crowds, things like that. Um, Right. Uh, Mr. Santa Barbara was particularly moved by a video in another state that was recorded a police interaction with a young man, um, a boy really, who was on the autism spectrum and wasn't doing anything wrong. He was in a park. There was no evilness on the part of the police. He just didn't simply understand, and he thought that the boy who was doing something called stinting, which was just uh, using his hands to kind of relieve his tension, um, and he thought he was perhaps reaching for a weapon, and they ended up knocking him to the ground, and 
Elizabeth, tell us a little about what Gilderland's doing and how our police chief, Carol Lawler, is particularly personally yeah, interested. So, yeah, Carol Lawler also, like uh, Santa Barbara, has um, a, a son who's on the uh, autism spectrum, so she definitely has a personal, um, you know, skin in the game, as they say. But, um, yeah, they have um, not waited for the... Uh, statewide uh, card to take effect, but they have um, in Gildan have made their own card. Um, so <clears throat> it's a card that's optional if you have a family member who's on the autism spectrum uh, who's like on, who's registered with the Gildan Police. You can sign up for this card that they would carry with them, and it identifies them and any diagnosis that they have. It could be for anybody who isn't communicative. So it could be for anybody who's older who can't speak because of some kind of dementia or something like that. Or it could be for somebody on the spectrum. And, um, yeah, so they have their own card. And I think um, Angelo Santa Barbara's idea is that it would be good um, if we can have a statewide card that would be recognizable, whether it's bright yellow or whatever it might be. It would be sticking out of someone's wallet or in their pocket or whatever around their neck on a string or something. And then people would recognize it readily, no matter where you went, you know, because people who are autistic who live in Gildeland go places that aren't Gildeland, you know. So it's good to have something that is... Consistent. Yeah. And the other thread that Elizabeth mentioned, if we look like Janus ahead, was about raise the age. And New York is one of two states that considered someone who was 16 to be an adult, and legislation has passed, and that will be phased in. Do you want to just tell us a yeah, little about that? Yeah, so 16-year-olds will um, start to be no longer be treated as adults as of this October. They will... Um, start out in family court unless they're charged with a felony and they'll be they'll be dealt with in family court unless they're charged with a felony then that would start out in the a new part of the adult court called the youth part and it would go to the family court you know unless there was some reason for it to stay in the um in the youth part of the adult court so it would just be um, yeah, there would be a lot more chance for the 16-year-old's misdemeanors would be dealt with in family court, and felonies would have a much better chance of being dealt with there as well if they were not violent felonies. Um, although I'm not sure of the definition of what is a violent felony, like a, like a bomb. Th- I don't know what would happen with something like that. But um, but then 17-year-olds would be a year later, October of next year. So our time is up, but I cannot close until we get at least a little bit on the terrible wood chipper accident that's been so thoroughly covered by Elizabeth. Could you just sort of recap what happened and where you are now with covering the OSHA trial? So May May 2016 was when Justice Booz um, agreed to go to work for one day for $60 for um, Tony Watson's Countryside Tree, which is a Gilderland company, and they went out to jobs in Gilderland. Justice Booz was living in Schenectady. They went out to um, to Gilderland Homes um, and did their tree work, and in the middle of the day, um, Justice Booz, um, who was one of five people working there that day, along with Tony Watson, including Tony Watson, um, he wound up in the wood chipper. He was ingested into the wood chipper headfirst, as we heard in the OSHA hearing, and um, he was instantly killed. Um, and Tony Watson was fined by OSHA a total of $141,000 um, for his many, what, you know, what they call violations, a serious and also a willful violation. So he basically got the maximum fine that could be charged by OSHA. 
Uh, and he challenged it, and he wound up challenging it all the way to court, which is kind of unusual, you know, to an OSHA hearing. It's quite unusual. So a judge came up from Washington, held a hearing, three-day hearing, listened to why Tony Watson's lawyer said that he shouldn't have to, you know, pay this much or any, if anything, and uh, listened to the OSHA attorney talk about why, you know, he he should, why he, you know, he didn't have sufficient training and he wasn't watching and things like that. And we heard from his lawyer, from Tony Watson's lawyer, we heard from Tony Watson that, uh, yeah, his he doesn't have a safety program like a big company. And basically, his safety method is he said he. He basically tries to do everything himself. Um, we heard about his kind of inconsistent um, types of training. He told Justice Booz that he couldn't use the wood, he couldn't put stuff into the wood chipper at all, it, um, at all. Then he also told him he could put it into the wood chipper as long as it wasn't running. Then he also told him, well, he could put stuff into the wood chipper if it was running, as long as somebody else was watching him at the time. So he, he told him a lot of different types of things that could conceivably be. A little confusing. We also saw video of the men at, a, at an earlier job that day doing a many, many different very dangerous things involving the wood chipper, like leaning over it and putting small things in, standing with their back to it, manipulating large logs, and different things that are completely you're not supposed to do. Um, so what's going to happen now is that um, the judge, because of the hearing, the OSHA fine, the original fine is basically thrown out. And the judge now will be in charge of deciding what fine, if any, will be levied against Tony Watson. It's kind of like a clean slate. And now the judge can decide what fine, if any, would be appropriate. And the point of the OSHA fines is to make employers more responsible or more aware. Right. Unfortunately, the money does not go to anything like a family member or something like that. Um, there is a fiancé of Justice Booth who was not married to him, and so it cannot sue, for instance, Tony Watson in civil court for any kind of damages because she's not his family member. She can sue, but then if any money were to be, um, you know, if any verdict were to give any sort of fine against Tony Watson, it would not go to her. It would go to a family member, like a third cousin or a fourth cousin. It right. wouldn't go and to her. And we've editorialized on that mm-hmm. subject because they were planning on getting married within weeks, and yep. he was a father to their her children, yes. and it just seems so unfair. He was a 23-year-old who was looking forward to taking on, you know, a, a wife and with who already had three children. You know, uh, he was looking forward to being their official father. But, um, yeah, so the money would go to the government, the U.S. government. But um, what's good about it, what's good about fines is that they, they then deter, supposedly, other companies from saying to themselves, well, you know, what's the worst that can happen? I, I don't have time for training. You know, I can't pay people for being trained. So let's just get on with it and do the job. And, you know, I'll tell them on the fly. You know, I'll tell them what they need to know on the fly a little bit if I think of it. You know, it, it deters them from thinking that way and makes them think that training is really, really important because it's very, very expensive if somebody gets hurt or killed on the job. So... Well, thank you, Elizabeth. You will continue to follow that sad story, I'm sure. And with that, I think I'll conclude our our Janus look backwards and forwards and wish our listeners a good year ahead. <laughs>